On a chilly spring day earlier this year, I received a notification from my friend Julia, our first guest on the Infinite Search. The show had just launched a couple hours prior, and people were reaching out to show their support. Julia was excited to introduce me to a friend who was curious to know more. Julia introduced me to Gabriel, and in our first meeting, I saw how they abide by their own set of rules, customs, and beliefs. A ritual of making in community as a way forward. We instantly connected over similarities in our own stories, and their vulnerability was beautifully human, courageous, and inspiring. Gabriel Chalfin-Piney is a performance artist and organizer with a background in cohort creation and public programming. They're interested in making by way of olfactory, gustatory, and tactile experiments, prompting audience members to participate as co-creators. Failure, co-learning, and storytelling are central to the projects that they participate in. Gabriel has held positions at the Lunder Institute of American Art, School of the Art Institute of Chicago, the Woodstock Woodcliffe Guild, and the Vassar College's Powerhouse Theater. They have performed at the Dorsky Museum, Panoply Performance Lab, Chicago Artists Coalition, High Concept Labs, Grace Exhibition Space, and the Whitney Museum of Art. Gabriel holds an MA in Arts Administration and Policy from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and they are currently engaged with Urban Gateways as the Senior Instructional Program Manager and are also the founder of Careful Histories, an oral history archiving food performance residency, which I'm particularly excited to talk to them about today. Gabriel, thank you for joining me on the Infinite Search. I'm looking forward to seeing where our conversation takes us today. As am I. Thank you so much, John. I'm, that was such a beautiful opening, and thank you for inviting me to your home. Yeah, for sure. So I'm kind of curious, growing up, what was your religious or spiritual background, and uh, how do you think it sort of plays into the sort of work that you're doing today? I was thinking about, like, what is my, like, first spiritual or, like, religious moment, mm -hmm. and I do remember it. My parents... I would say they're deeply spiritual people. I don't know if my dad would identify that way. My mom would. I was born in New York City and I moved upstate when I was like two or three. And we lived in Wappinger Falls and Poughkeepsie, New York. My earliest memory with spirituality was, I remember this very like muddy day on one of the Jewish high holy days. I don't know if it was Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, but we would go on the High Holy Days to the Woodstock Jewish Temple. Um, and they were a pretty small congregation, but on the High Holy Days, as many Jews do, they go repent, try and be forgiven, and you know, the congregation blossoms, right? So it's under this big tent. And I remember just being covered in mud. There was just, you know, hundreds of people there. There is still the same rabbi that I grew up with, this Rabbi Jonathan Case, and he's just this beautiful storyteller. He's always like noodling on his acoustic guitar as he's like telling stories. Uh, a deeply um, anti-Zionist community as well, and just really pro-love and community service and generosity. And I remember such a closeness to that there was like people praying and singing outside and dancing and also that there was all these art activities for kids. And so I remember making a mask, I think, and doing something with yarn. You would park in this parking lot and you would get shuttled in these 
big yellow school buses, like as a whole family. And then on, on Rosh Hashanah, we would get like two big brown, brown uh, grocery store bags that they would give us. And then on Yom Kippur, which is a few weeks later, we would bring a bunch of canned goods and those would go to the food pantry in Woodstock. I think that that type of reflection or closeness to that time is pretty recent. I would say only within the last like three or four years has Judaism been something that I have like moved towards instead of away from. There was a lot of religion in my house and also a lot of atheism in my house. Um, the kind of longest, we moved around a bit when I was a kid and then eventually we moved to a Quaker boarding school where my mother was the head of the art department there. And I was, you know, introduced to Quakerism for the first time. And I also grew up Jewish. My father is an ex-Catholic um, and pretty staunch atheist at that. And also my mother has been really influenced by Buddhist practices. Hearing how you work um, or how you started to see this space where you're essentially working backwards, how do you define that end result? How do you come to what that uh, maybe cornerstone of the project would be that gives you the, the grounding to kind of create the whole project in reverse? You know, I think the more I talk about my work with people, it becomes abundantly clear that I am in these processes of design and design thinking. And I, but I do think that performance theater dance, choreography, you know, that is something that I've always been drawn to, whether it's through these lenses of theory or through just exploring like ensemble-based collectives and what that's meant to theater history in general. In the last five years or so of making, I've been getting closer and closer to kind of more traditional forms of theater and less performance art. And I think that I stayed away for so long because it's something that's felt very sacred to me. And I think I thought that I wasn't really ready to host or harness that in my body and that I would destroy that love for it if I wasn't healing well enough or something, that that love would disappear. I think the work that I'm most drawn to is work that people are considered on every sort of level. Right, that could be through the lens of disability studies, just in general, looking at what is accessible. And I think for me that often involves uh, multi-generational approaches to art and making sure something can be digested on all sorts of different levels. I feel like the first example of that was something I remember like as a young kid watching The Simpsons and laughing at something and then my dad would laugh at something and something very different. And he's like, oh yeah, I love The Simpsons because it's, it, it, it hits people and whatever age they are in a different place. And there was something about that, not that I've been heavily influenced by The Simpsons, but I think being able to see one form of art and all these different entry points to it. And I think that when you consider the audience in performance making, you don't have to do that. It can be this very, look at me doing my serious artwork. Right. Look how important this is. And that's never really been something that drew me in, that, that felt like it, it pushed me away. And so I think 
part of my journey with performance art has been seeing how people can feel welcomed into a space. And then also, if they're not willing to participate, it's not a resigning to uh, a lesser experience, that it, it's not compromising anything. So I, I, I am thinking about like, what happens to the people who don't want to do anything and just want to sit there. You know, you can do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself that day. And, and often there is this form of care in how I am creating work and sharing it with people and wanting them to have some sort of, whether they know it or not, maybe a spiritual experience. The, the work you did with Careful Histories in this um, oral history archiving process. And, but I'm curious to learn more about what inspired that idea. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that connection to food specifically and storytelling is definitely a real strong influence from my father. My dad is like an incredible storyteller, has been my whole life, just pulls a room together. A lot of them are, you know, life experiences that he's sharing about and has just had this kind of wildlife. My dad moved here in the 80s and, you know, met my mother living in New York. And for much of my early life before I left the home was a catering director and would come up with menus for a living. And, um, I started working with food as a medium in my art making about five years ago when I moved to Chicago and started tattooing oral histories onto oranges and grapefruits. In learning how to tattoo, you would tattoo citrus fruit because it was pretty cheap and it mimics a kind of texture similar to human skin. And yeah, so I, I started tattooing these stories and the kind of metaphor just like kept growing and growing. And that project now, um, come October, it'll be like five years that I've continued it. The original project started with, I was tattooing these oral histories that I had collected. I was a volunteer in this organization called Our Children, which works with formerly incarcerated mothers in uh, Long Island City in New York and gives them vocational training and safe housing. And I was working with this uh, professor uh, at Sarah Lawrence, Jerry Alberelli, and he had this relationship with our children. And what we would do is we were going in uh, as a class and interviewing these mothers and talking to them about their life history, also through this lens of like kind of before prison and after prison and during, you know. And then we would hire actors and have them, you know, edit together a script, hire actors to play the mothers, and then we would invite them to a screen, to a, you know, a showing. And it was just such a transformative experience for me. And it really was this kind of first time where I saw how like art and organizing or art and activism were perfectly melded to go together. I really thought they had to kind of exist separately. So in this project, to kind of fast forward a bit, I had done a lot of that oral history interviewing like 2010 to like 2013, 2014. And I had all these stories recorded. And so I started writing them and tattooing them into the fruit. And I think there was this idea of, I knew after a couple tests that the fruit was molding very shortly after and so I recognized that these stories that I wanted to preserve couldn't be preserved. And there was this aspect of 
feeling like stories that need to be told, that need to be preserved, and how many of those stories get left untold, right? And um, I just love that project. It, it continues. I still have this, the first orange that didn't mold and it just perfectly dehydrated. <laughs> and it's like five years old and it's like really, it's, it's like sun bleached and all this from like having it in different homes. That is definitely where the interest in Careful Histories came from. And I got a grant to do a dinner and to pay for the supplies and to offer them each $500 and then to do oral history interviews with them. Uh, so Careful Histories just became something that I kept refining in my mind and thinking about and just wanting to host performative dinners in some way where I was talking with an artist about how they wanted people to interact with the work, how they wanted people to come into these spaces. And so I got to work with these three artists before I left Maine. It was a very ambitious project. I, I already knew that I was going to move back to Chicago. And the funny thing, you know, for anybody listening who is into astrology, the people I picked, I didn't know too much about them. I had met a couple in passing. They were just artists I knew about in Maine. And all four of us ended up being Capricorns. And we kind of learned about that in some of the planning stages. And also, <laughs> also the person who did the original logo design was also a Capricorn. It's just like everybody involved with the project. I do think that Careful Histories has also been my attempt to share some of my choreography of how I think about performance work and thinking about going from the meal backwards or from the performance backwards. And so we talked a lot about location and I met all the artists at their proposed locations before we invited people or did any of the planning for the meal and just got to see like what would it look like and like are there accessibility concerns at these places and and being really clear in our invitations to the community like what they would be in store for i think something that has always bothered me about performance is a sense of surprise the sense of being startled i think a lot of people like that right i'm not someone who likes horror i'm not someone who necessarily likes suspense and and i do think that like when we're given whether it's a score or any sort of accessibility aid, it allows more people to engage with the work. And so I think part of how I have designed that residency was really being somebody to navigate all the planning steps for somebody and allow them to like express their art freely. freely. It was interesting learning about, you know, you have these distinctions between the a more co-creative space and then this the private side the private practice of what you do and part of this of the storytelling for the play isn't it needs to be co-created there's multiple endings in in this idea that um the island can have multiple endings i found that fascinating because oh, with you, soccer island because of soccer island and you're oh, creating yeah. oh this gosh. jewelry in the present tense and I've, I've been watching you make this jewelry and i'm fascinated by the jewelry in and of itself and then once I found out that there's this narrative to it, I was like hooked. And I just loved that idea that you're, you're thinking about this future space where you're going to have people working together to create the future endings of this mm -hmm. play. And that was really inspiring to me um, because for me, there's an analog to how we move in the world like that. Been really influenced by the work of Lynn Hickson and Matthew Gulish um, of Every House Has a Door and Goat Island. And... So much of what they are doing is looking at 
the type of art or literature that they're ingesting and using bits and pieces and adapting it and responding to it and constantly in this call and response with everything in their life. And I think uh, Soccer Island has become this maybe perpetually unfinished uh, place and world. I also really got influence on this idea of the reliable or the unreliable narrator. And I specifically saw that in saint stories that I was reading. And I, I was heavily influenced by this person, Saint Seraphim of Sarov, right? And he has this crazy story in which he domesticates these bears and there he's meeting nuns in the wood to commune with. And he's, he's like kind of trading with the bears and he's giving them bread and they're bringing him back honey. And, and so <laughs> I just like, it sounds incredulous. Yeah. And I, I was like, there's no way this is real. Yeah. Right. And it's like, also just like saint stories are often written by like, you know, apostles or disciples of those saints. Right. So they're going to be like, Oh, this person's amazing. He walks on water, all this right. stuff. And then I looked up more about, you know, this sect of Russian uh, Cenobites in the woods. And there's all these photos of them with bears. And I was like, what is real? Like, I have no idea. And I just like, couldn't believe it. And so Soccer Island started kind of morphing into what if St. Seraphim was not in Russia, but was actually in the woods of Maine where I was at that time. And what if instead of bears, it was crabs? And what if and continuing to just have all these multiple threads so i love the idea of what ifs and i want to i want to play a little bit sure and please. what's a what if for you i think something i've been talking with my partner about and a friend is buying a, like a duplex together right buying home ownership is really it's something I don't have experience with and it's not something that i can necessarily relate to but I do think that having a home base somewhere is something really important to me. And, you know, trusting a place is something that's really important to me. And I really would love to be in a place where privacy and yet communal living is possible. I think I've seen examples of people who have raised families in community and I think that's something really beautiful. It's a big reason I wanted to come back to Chicago. I had a lot of close friends who uh, are single mothers by choice and they were having kids and I wanted to be around for that child rearing. And, and it's a lot of what I spent the last half of um, 2022 doing was taking care of my friends' newborns. And I mean, it, it just really saved me from myself in a lot of ways. You growing up in upstate New York and thinking about what was going on that formed Bread and Puppet Theater. And for people who don't know what Bread and Puppet Theater is, stop this recording and Google it real fast and then hit play. Um, um, but they were and are, still are uh, a very active and socially engaged um, theater company. What sort of spaces do you envision you building like that? I think what feels exciting to me right now with things like careful histories or with this kind of new ensemble type of making that I'm starting to do, which I'm calling Salt Lick Labyrinth, uh, is, is like learning different things. You work through this process of co-creation, yeah. but it has a heavy emphasis for, for what I seem to see through failure. 
And I'm curious why that resonates with you so deeply. I think that it was going to come up at one time or another, right? So recovery is something that has been without a doubt the biggest teacher in my life. And I think part of that, the word failure itself was a bad thing. I felt like a failure when I was in active addiction and active alcoholism. And so I think I came to this place where whatever failure was, which for me involved dropping out of college, right, moving back in with family, um, not knowing what I was going to do with my life, it really was this, a lot of people say, like, there's a second chance at life. But I do feel that way. I do think that that period of not being teachable, being in a place where dishonesty was just really at the core of my being. Like I just didn't know how to tell the truth. I didn't know how to be honest with myself or others. That felt more like a failure than anything. And I think in that process of learning how to ask for help, learning that there was just a million ways to ask for help became this like success and this teacher in itself. And so, you know, I had my last drink on Halloween of 2012, you know, it's about 10 years ago. And, you know, and I entered long-term recovery during that period. And I think there was so much I didn't know how to do. From that came letting go of a lot of how I viewed the world. And the world was really a space that I didn't understand. I think the longer that I'm on this spiritual path and on this path of recovery, I just see that failure is integral to me learning and coming to these points of needing to ask for help again, needing to ask for help in different ways. And also the importance of, I don't know if it's important, but it, it seems to be the only way that I'll learn is that my solution becomes easier to face than suffering. And that suffering is something that is no longer the easier, softer way to move through the world. You know, I hit a kind of emotional bottom a few weeks ago, and this happens all the time at different points, you know. But I hit this bottom, and I was just honest with people about it. I was honest with, you know, my sponsors in my life, my therapist, my partner, friends, people I look up to. Um, my parents will probably listen to this interview and they did not know that I was struggling a few weeks ago. They, maybe they could sense it, but I didn't say it directly to them. I didn't want them to worry, maybe. Um, but I have these tools today. And so what it looked like was reading my spiritual literature more, praying and meditating daily, engaging more with my 12-step recovery meetings, um, seeing the ways that I start to lie to myself, seeing the ways that dishonesty creeps up. And it's insidious, you know. I'm, I'm in this perpetual state of practice and rehearsal, I think is, is crucial to me continuing to also be on this path of like self-love and, um, and acceptance around who I am and things I've done and whatever else. So yeah, love that question. It's such a good one. And I uh, absolutely appreciate you sharing that with me very deeply. I had a hard time in my life up until 2020, um, being an honest person um, with myself uh, foremost and then with everyone else 
after that because that's how that works. And it was a profound moment in my life of hitting rock bottom uh, mentally. Um, and my life has become immeasurably better after um, choosing that path. Um, the way that you work that into your art practice from my perspective, the thing that I get from it is grace. That grace is present with the objects that you're making, and that makes that that space has grace then too. And to me, that's a very sacred thing that we can walk through this world and create that space for for each other. We've only known each other for maybe a few weeks now, maybe a month or so, and I think it's. Um, I already feel so much of the sense of generosity and just um, brutal honesty is not the term I would use, but maybe just like a heart openness with your honesty. And, you know, we went for a long walk and, and got some food together. And I just, I do think that that type of love and honesty is, it is contagious in such a beautiful way. And it's something I want to keep catching. Right. And, I, grace is a really interesting word. I really, I haven't really thought about it too much. So you've given me a lot to like marinate with. Juicy. Yeah. <laughs> I need to dry out my tears. I know that you have some work coming up in September around ritual and some things that are tied to your own personal histories around um, religion and spirituality into Judaism. Um, I actually ran into the manager of Comfort Station uh, a few days ago and randomly came into conversation about it. And I was wondering if you'd be um, willing to share any of that that's coming up. Yeah, absolutely. I can I can talk about that, and then I can also talk about uh, another show that I'm working on. Um, Jess Bass is my collaborator for the show. It's a two-person show. Uh, Jess is an absolutely unbelievable artist who's influenced me heavily. We met in grad school. Uh, I ended up curating a solo exhibition that she had, also directing a piece with characters that she made, and that was performed by Aida Ramirez and Corey Smith. And it was performed as part of opening or closing of her exhibition. And anyways, we became collaborators from that point on and ended up curating, co-curating another um, show that she had in New York. And then we decided we needed to make work together as kind of collaborators uh, and really starting from its inception and moving forward. So... That show will be about a year in the making when it comes out in September. Um, and a big part of it has been, you know, I think we're both drawn to play and interactivity. And I think the, the sense of wanting things to be approachable for all ages is something I think we immediately connected, uh, we connected on. And... So the show is called When Souls Stick, and it's really about how inanimate objects are imbued with soul, and especially how there is a long history of that um, in Jewish um, folktales specifically. And we are exploring 
um, a number of different stories, including uh, probably one of the more famous Jewish um, folk histories is around the Golem, and specifically how this rabbi had created this Golem out of earth, and it protected uh, the city that the original Golem existed in. And so a big part of how this show is happening is through Jess and I doing our own research related to uh, different interpretations and tellings of these different stories. Um, and it has been something that I think will just be like a jumping off point for us in a lot of ways. Um, I think it's for me personally, it feels like a really big turning point in my art making where I'm intentionally making time for and carving out my life to, to allow for more making and something where we're being influenced both by the, you know, the history of how Jewish homes have looked over hundreds and hundreds of years and adapting uh, symbology from those places and creating new objects. Um, something that'll be in the show will be an adapted and interpreted uh, dining table and chairs, as well as these different ghosts and angels in the space that will, will be puppets and will also not be puppets. And there is also something that specifically around ritual that really started the inception of the show, which was um, Jess's research on incantation bowls and specifically these Jewish incantation bowls uh, that would manifest certain things. And um, she has started her own series working on those. And um, that has definitely been a big influence on this show. So part of what is going to start happening in the next few weeks is us starting to hire puppeteers to help work with us on the choreography of how the show will be interacted with. Um, and we're also making videos in which uh, these different characters in our story are coming to life. I think a big part of it also for me, I don't want to speak on behalf of Jess, but I do think that wanting to make Jewish folktales and spirituality more approachable, I think it's something that I have been really resistant to, to identifying as know, a Jewish artist or something, or like... I think that identity is something that it felt more important to defend, especially in the rise of so much anti-Semitism. And, you know, the previous year is that I was like, you know, I cannot hide from this anymore. And I really need to be an advocate for um, pro-Palestinian Jews um, and Jewish artists. And so I have this larger hope of this show being a place to find Jewish community in the Midwest. And we are going to be also having a lot of programming happening, including movies and workshops, all which will be free at Comfort Station in the month of September. And I think that my goal and Jess's goal is really to have this be approachable for people. I don't know, I'm not looking to convert anybody. But I'm, I think I am looking for people to, to see that these are stories that need to be told and the importance of artistic interpretation and being able to modernize these stories that maybe, for me personally, were not really approachable in certain ways when I was younger. And I'm excited to, to see what that, that looks like. 
Yeah, thank you. So I definitely want to revisit this conversation around bread and puppet theater, around self-taught art, outsider art, whatever you want to call that. It seems to resonate very deeply with how you move through the world and how you view art and art making. Why, why is there such a deep tie to your interest with self-taught artists? There was something about growing up where I grew up in the Hudson Valley where just a lot of time spent going to antique shops, going to thrift stores, and then also having these trips where like we weren't so far from New York City, right? So we were going down, I was going down the city with my family and seeing, you know, quote unquote, professional artists or, or genius artists in museums. And, and I liked the art that was like in our house. And I liked the art that was from, you know, my parents' friends and things like that who were maybe not taught um, at art school or something, or were not so well known. And, you know, the bread and puppet theater is something that I was been going to those performances as well as the arm of the sea theater, which is a very kind of similar type of troupe, much more focused on environmentalism and connected to really a lot of storytelling around the Hudson river and understanding, you know, the ecological climate of the Hudson Valley and I grew up going to see those performances and it just hit something, you know, in my core. And I just, I have loved puppetry for my whole life and only recently kind of started dabbling in my own experience of being a puppeteer and making my own puppets. I've also made them out of food, right? So they're made out of uh, rice cakes and matzah and dehydrated beets and uh, nori seaweed paper, you know, and it's just like, um, I dehydrated them and, and vacuum sealed them into bags and different arrangements. You know, it's funny how like one person can like put your whole life into perspective. Right. And you can be like, Oh, you've suddenly unlocked this key that like I knew was there, but I maybe didn't have, um, the definition for it. And you gave me the definition. Right. And so I took this course with Lisa Stone, who is the former curator and director of the Roger Brown Study Collection, which is now like in partnership with uh, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And it's called Better Homes and Gardens. And her whole class is something where she is looking at self-taught artists and art environments all across the country, uh, mostly fo focuses on the US. There's a lot of examples in the Midwest specifically and big part of the class was understanding, you know, from a kind of visual critical lens, the landscape around us, P projects we had to do was visiting self-taught artists, art environments in the Midwest. There's a lot of them in Wisconsin. And so I realized that like a lot of my life had been actually going to certain sites like that in the Hudson Valley. And just in general, it's something that my parents seemed to seek out when we would travel were these sites like that, that an artist had made, whether it was an artist's home or something else. You know, I grew up really close to Opus 40, this, this site uh, in Saugerties, Woodstock, New York area, and then also um, Russell Wright's home, Manitoba in Garrison, New York. And this like coexisting of the human in the environment is something that I saw both in like the theater that I like to do. Like I really loved outdoor theater and site-specific theater and things moving through the landscape. 
And then also people who were like living there and maybe not even identifying as an artist. Again, like I had shared, like I just kind of recently, like I struggle with the term artist. And I, I think a lot of the quote unquote artists that I love, especially self-taught artists are people who struggle with that term too, because they don't feel necessarily included um, in that canon or something. And so Lisa really gave me uh, the definition of like, oh, this is how to talk about this work. Um, this is also where it is. And I, I just like didn't stop after that. And so through the whole pandemic, I was visiting sites like across the country and also, you know, starting to kind of join within this community of people who are who are seeing the story around it, both like the preserving and the, the legacy of these artists and participating in this kind of global community of self-taught artists. You know, as much as I know about like a, a, a religious pilgrimage, going to these different sites has become a, a central part of like, if I travel anywhere, I will look up on the Spaces Archive, it's this website called Spaces, which is connected to John Michael Kohler Art Center in Wisconsin. And I'll just see, are there any, you know, existing self-taught artist environments in this area? And I visited probably close to 40 or 50 sites in the last three, three or so years. And each one has kind of been this like pilgrimage. They have just become these incredibly spiritual places for me to visit. And I think the most authentic places that I've seen spiritually embedded artwork have been from self-taught artists and specifically these art environments that I've traveled to. There's like an unapologetic nature to it, which is something that I aspire to as well. And I think that that like all goes back to the bread and puppet theater for me, which has just been that, um, you know, the artistic director, Peter Schumann has been this person who I go to for such a sense of inspiration and also maybe learning one person can have an idea and it can be built through an entire legacy of people who are wanting to adapt and, and learn and interpret that idea and i something that i love to share with people who maybe don't know it but you know peter had his first solo show when he was 75 years old at the queen's museum the show called the shatterer i think it was in 2012 or 2011 and I, I love that show. It's a great show, but just the fact that like there's no rush. I got so much time. I got decades to learn. I think something I've learned from self-taught artists is being able to use things over and over again, right? To repaint something, to take something apart. And so, um, whether it's in my jewelry or in my object making for performance or in some of these sculptures that I'm making right now for my show with Jess, um, I am using objects that I've collected over the years uh, and seeing the, the type of collaging that's happening with that is something that feels really new and exciting to me, even though I've been doing it for a little while now. You know, I think a lot of these objects that I'm, I'm using in my work today um, are something that also spoke to me in the same way that I think that type of inspiration I've seen in self-taught artists. Um, this form of the staff is something that's now become kind of a reoccurring object. And it started in this show. I did timely sanctification where I made using these ax handles. I topped them with these large, like one foot tall beeswax candles. 
And now I have used those same handles in performance objects for this uh, collective, um, this Salt Lick Labyrinth performance and dance. So yeah, I'm constantly seeing things that have had a past history. You know, I don't know what, if that was, if those handles were used as axes in the past, I think they probably were, but now they get to be in a dance mm. or as the base of a candle. I love that about assemblage and, you know, found art. I love the idea of making meaning through other meaning and playing with those worlds like that. And then when I, what I see with your practice is whether you're a self-taught artist or not, you have this certain curiosity. The idea of seeing a shell with beeswax inside makes me want to create a new world because I've never seen that one before. And it gives me the opportunity to understand that that's a possibility. Um, and to me, that's a really beautiful thing. You know, I was immediately drawn to the work you're doing with this podcast. And I think the questions that you're wanting to ask and not necessarily looking for answers, I don't see uh, answers maybe being the goal, but the sense of like, what are more questions to, to fuel your own life with? And to, I, I see you offering that in your interviewing and just your reflection of your experience of, of my work and other people's work here. So thank you for that. I think all I would say is uh, I'll, maybe I'll plug a couple shows that are coming up. I am participating in a bird show, which is uh, curated by Aaron Toll. That's opening next weekend. It'll be up for a couple weeks with a, a live stream. And I am doing a piece called the Sierra Mist Memorial Birdbath. And mm -hmm. I am uh, creating a birdbath uh, and feeding stations as also in a kind of death ritual for the Pepsi-Cola uh, beverage Sierra Mist, which is no longer in production. So it's going to be a very silly show. You know, there's going to be some documentation of that, which I'm excited to share. And then the whole month of September, there'll be programming and this exhibition, When Souls Stick, at Comfort Station which is a collaboration with Jess Bass. And yeah, I just want to thank you for your time. And, and I'm, I've just been loving sitting in this room with our tea and your, your lovely dog, who's just been the coziest little girl <laughs> this whole time. <laughs> Sweet Judy, she's the, the third. Yeah. Thank you for that. And thank you for being on the show. Uh, I can't wait to see what else you have coming up your sleeve. So. Thanks, John. I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon.